This week I was, uh, I was reading actually an article in uh, a magazine called Christianity Today. It's been around, the magazine's been around for quite a long time, and this article was from a number of years ago. And every once in a while they throw an article in Christianity Today about um, a character in the history of the Christian church. And this is one actually that you should know. If you've been a Christian for any time at all, you should know a little bit about your lineage and uh, should know about Christians who've come before you and done great things. A name that you probably don't know but maybe should is the name Perpetua. Perpetua was a young woman who was very famous in the early church because she was martyred for the faith. She, she died for her faith. Here's her story, as recorded or written by, um, by Christianity Today. We have little idea what brought Perpetua to faith in Christ or how long she had been a Christian or how she lived her Christian life. Thanks to her diary and that of another prisoner, we have some idea of her last days. An ordeal that was so, imp- that so impressed the famous Augustine that he preached four sermons about her death. Perpetua was a Christian noblewoman who, at the turn of the third century, lived with her husband, her son, and her slave Felicitas in Carthage, which is in North Africa. At that time, North Africa was the center of a vibrant Christian community, so it's no surprise then that when the Roman emperor Septimius Severus determined to cripple Christianity, he focused his attention on that region. Among the first to be arrested were five new Christians taking classes to prepare for baptism, one of whom was Perpetua. Her father immediately came to her in prison. He was a pagan, and he saw an easy way for Perpetua to save herself. He entreated her simply to deny that she was a Christian. Father, do you see this vase here? She replied to him. Could it be called by any other name than what it is? Well, no, he replied. Well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am. I'm a Christian. Well, in the next days, Perpetua was moved to a better part of the prison and allowed to, to breastfeed her child. With her hearing approaching, her father visited again, this time pleading more passionately. Have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father, if I deserve to be called your father, if I've favored you among all, among all your brothers, if I've raised you to reach this prime of your life. And he threw himself down before her and kissed her hands. Don't abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you're gone. Give up your pride, Perpetua. Perpetua was touched, but she remained unshaken. She tried to comfort her father. It will all happen as God wills, for you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power, she said. He walked out of the prison dejected. The day the hearing arrived, Perpetua and her friends were marched before the governor. Perpetua's friends were questioned first, and each in turn admitted to being a Christian, and each refused to make a sacrifice, which was an act of emperor worship. In those days, it was taking a little bit of incense and just dashing it on top of a a lit flame so that it would sparkle a little bit, make some smell, and it was a way for you to say that I believe the emperor is God. The governor then turned to question Perpetua. At that moment, her father, carrying Perpetua's son in his arms, burst into the room. He grabbed Perpetua and pleaded, perform the sacrifice, have pity on your baby. 
The governor, probably wishing to avoid the unpleasantness of executing a mother who still nursed a child, he, he calmly and quietly added, have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. But Perpetua replied simply, I will not. Are you a Christian then? Asked the emperor. Yes, I am. Perpetua replied. Her father interrupted again, begging her to sacrifice. But the governor had heard enough. He ordered soldiers to beat him into silence and then condemned Perpetua and her friends to die in the arena. Perpetua, her friends, and her slave Felicitas, who had subsequently been arrested, were dressed in belted tunics. And when they entered the stadium, wild beasts and gladiators roamed the arena floor. And in the stands, crowds roared to see blood. They didn't have to wait long. Immediately, a bull, a wild bull, charged the group. And Perpetua was tossed into the air and onto her back. She sat up, adjusted her ripped tunic, and walked over to Felicitas. But then a leopard was let loose. And it wasn't long before the tunics of the Christians were stained with blood. But this was all too deliberate for the impatient crowd, which began calling for the death of the Christians. So Perpetua, Felicitas, and their friends were lined up and one by one were slain by the sword. Have you ever wondered why it is that being one of God's doesn't protect you from that kind of thing? And we believe things like, like uh, Jesus is Lord of all the earth and that God appointed him to be the after his resurrection, to be the, the, the Lord of all things, has all power, and will bring all things under his authority and rule. Why can't God then show a special favor to those who believe him and protect them from stuff like, from, from stuff like that? You know, the guy who, who was on the video, Connor, I, I remember him when he had found out that he had cancer and it started to spread that, that, that he was, of course, gonna have to take some time off of work and all these sorts of things and they weren't sure about the prognosis. I remember one Saturday night after I had preached a sermon here at Northview, uh, I was sitting up in our open office in the corner, the dark, I was just fixing some of the sermon for the next day on my computer and uh, qu quietly he, he approached me and sat down in the chair so I stopped what I was doing and I turned to him and I said, what's, what's up? And he told me, of course, that he had cancer. I said, I know, I have heard that. He said, I just have some questions, Jeff, he said. Why, like, why would God stand by and watch while this sort of thing happens to somebody who wants to follow him so dearly like me? Like, I don't get it. There's an old story, it's a real story actually, in 1947 there was a man named Glenn Chambers, he was a, he was a, a missionary, he was going out on the mission field, kind of giving his life to Christ and to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus in Ecuador, he was in the Miami airport ready to fly away, he thought as a last act before he left he was going to write a letter to his mother, but he didn't have any stationery, so he looked around the airport for some kind of document he could write something on. He found a, a flyer 
that was on uh, you know, a bulletin board posted up with a, you know, a, a thumbtack. And in the middle of it, it drew his attention because it just said in big black and white, why? Question mark. It had a lot of white space around it. So he, he grabbed the, the piece of paper and he wrote a letter to his mother, scribbled around the edges of the why, folded it up, sent it through the postal service that was at the airport. He got on an airplane. Two hours into that flight, his plane crashed into the side of a mountain, spiraled downward, killing all on board. His mother found out about this a few days later. And then the day after she found out about it, a letter arrived in the mail from her son. Postmarked the Miami airport. She opened it up, unfolded the piece of paper, and in the middle of the paper in black and white was the word, why? I mean, that's appropriate. That's the question, isn't it, for most of us? I mean, I, most people I know who've been Christians for years, that's a, it's all the noise of life is above, but underneath it all are the questions, why? Why has my life turned out like I wanted it to? Why have I not been married? Or why have I been married and been divorced? Why is it that my child has died? My sister died. My mother died. Husband died. Wife Why, Lord? If you had an opportunity, quite honestly, to, to ask God that to his face, you know, call him aside to a special meeting, maybe up in a cabin somewhere and have that discussion with him, wouldn't you jump at it? What I've described to you, of course, is the premise of the book, The Shack. And theology aside and what the books aside, it was a very popular book because that was the premise of it and everybody I know would love that meeting. God, just tell me, answer for me these questions. The book of Habakkuk is actually an ancient version of the shack, but the answers are better. It, but it, I say that because what, what it is, is a, it's a dialogue. It's a dialogue between a prophet who's facing some very difficult situations and questions about those situations. God, why are you not caring for your people the way you should? And he asks them to God, and God replies. It's, it's a back and forth up there in the woods. So here's what I want to do, and the way I want to organize our time in the next few minutes. Um, I want to look at Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 12 to chapter 2, verse 1. And I just want to deal with, with the question that Habakkuk asks to the Lord. And I want to deal with that by asking three questions and answering them. Here they are. Number one, can we ask questions? Is it okay for us to ask questions of God? Secondly, what causes the questions that we want to ask to God? And third, what should we do after we ask our questions? So is it okay to ask them? What causes them? And what do we do after we ask them? Here's the first of those. Can we ask questions of the Lord? Chapter one of Habakkuk. Verse 12, Lord, in, in, in the framework here, the, the context, this is the second question that Habakkuk's going to ask. He's already asked one, then he gets an answer, and then here's the second question. Lord, are you not from everlasting? 
My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. But your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you still silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? So there's a history. You're coming in the middle of the dialogue, right? But there's a history that leads to this. Judah, the, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two, okay, Israel and, and Judah. And Judah has a bunch of kings, and these kings all in a row have been real jerks, idolaters, they've walked far away from God. And so God is going to visit or threatened judgment. There's violence in the land because of the wicked kings. And, and Habakkuk has been complaining about this to God. Why can't you send us a good king? I keep crying violence. Why can't you send us at least one who obeys you? But it just seems like one after another after another are all wicked. God responds to Habakkuk's question by saying, oh, you think there's violence in the land now? Wait till I bring the Babylonians. Okay, nobody, nobody was freaked out when I said that, okay? You're supposed to go like, like shudder. The reason that you're supposed to shudder is, as Ezra said last week, the Babylonians were like ISIS, but, but mean. Uh, here's why I say that. Uh, when the Babylonians came and they took over particular lands, they would do certain things to teach the people a lesson. So one of the first things they do is found all the leaders in the land and they would actually impale them, right? Stick a pole right through their body, out their mouth. And they would station those poles around main roads so that when you were walking around just doing your normal business as the Babylonians have now taken over, you would get a, a constant object lesson on what it looks like if you stand over against them. You might end up on a toothpick by the side of the road. So think twice before you want to fight back. They would teach that lesson in other ways. Sometimes they would just cut off body parts of people around so that you'd just be doing business with people who didn't have an eye or their tongues were out or their hands were cut off, whatever. It's just, to, just to teach you a lesson. Don't, don't mess with us. If you were a particularly frustrating person and they wanted to teach this lesson, they would gather everybody around. And you know how ISIS would gather you know, on, on YouTube. They'll cut people's heads off. But this, those days, they didn't have YouTube. They'd just gather everybody around and they would flay, right, skin alive the people and then burn them in front of everyone else. Hey, everybody, just have a look at this. This is the kind of people we are. Don't mess with us. ISIS, but mean. So yes, you should shudder when you hear the Babylonians. And here we, God is saying to Habakkuk, listen, I'm, I'm going to use those Babylonians to judge you. So Habakkuk's got a problem. He's got problems on two grounds. Number one, he's got a problem with the fact that God won't send them a righteous king. He says that when he asks the question in verse two of Habakkuk one, he says, how long, Lord, must I call for help? But you won't listen or cry out violence, but you don't save. So you should have sent us a righteous king already so there isn't violence in the land. But secondly, and more importantly, now you're saying that you're gonna send the Babylonians <laughs> You're going to send the Babylonians, the impaling, idol-worshiping, wicked Babylonians to us? No wonder he asked the question in verse thing 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why do you tolerate the treacherous? 
Why are you silent while the wicked Babylonians swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Compared to them, we're awesome. And yet you're using them to judge us. How does this work, God? How does somebody like you do that and still call yourself our God, our protector, our Lord? So here's the thing you need to notice about this first, the first chapter, in fact, of, of Habakkuk is that this dude's filled with questions. And he's bold in asking them, and he's not asking them out of unbelief. He's not unfaithful in the asking. It's so weird sometimes when I spend time around some Christians. They seem to act like asking questions to God is the most dangerous thing you could ever do. Well, he's God. He's over there. Let's just talk about it amongst ourselves. And yet the Bible is filled with bold question askers. Faithful question askers, Holy Spirit inspired question askers. So I'm going to prove that to you. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, Lord? So the psalmist, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give life to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Come on, God. Where are you? Psalm 44. This psalm's actually a really delightful one in the sense that the first part of it is the psalmist recounting all the great things that he's heard God do. Oh, Lord, uh, I used to sit on my grandpappy's knee and he would tell me all the great things that you've done in the history of our people. And so my whole life, I've been expecting to see you act in this way. And what I've seen instead is squadoosh. So why, why aren't you acting? Listen to what he says in uh, Psalm 44, verse 23. Awake, Lord! Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We're brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. You know what it's about? Lamentations. It's aptly titled book. It's basically about the people of Israel after they've experienced the Babylonians coming in, so Habakkuk foretells them coming, they come, and then after the fact, the prophet is walking through the city of Jerusalem, which the Babylonians had laid siege to. What that means is that they had cut off all the supply to the city of Jerusalem so that there's no food going in. And so the only thing to eat in the city was each other, which happened. And then the Babylonians, after softening them up with the siege, just come in and just kill everybody. Men, women, old, young, everybody. Just killed them all and took some of them off to Babylon if they looked healthy enough and smart enough. So here you have the prophet walking around the city of Jerusalem after seeing their God, Yahweh, having been defeated by the Babylonian God. That's the way they interpreted it. And here's what he says, uh, Lamentations 2.20. Look, Lord, look. Let's take you on a tour, Lord. Look and consider whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their offspring? 
The children they've cared for, should, should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? I mean, they're your spokesman, Lord. And it offered them no protection. Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. Young women, Lord, have fallen by the sword. You've slain them in the day of your anger. You've slaughtered them without, without pity. That Babylonians were your instrument, God. What are you doing, Lord? I remember years ago uh, when I was in college, I went on a mission trip to Denver, actually work in the inner city of Denver with some people who were reaching out to the homeless population there. One of the girls that we went with um, was a friend of mine. I didn't know a whole lot about her before we went, but we got to know each other on the plane, and then we were talking, me and a few others were talking at uh, dinner, and then after dinner she, she had a cup of tea, and I sat down next to her, and she started to talk a little bit more and felt comfortable to share what she called her story. She said, I just feel like I need to tell you this. I'm not really sure why it is I'm here on a mission trip because I've got a very awkward relationship with God. I said, oh, okay. Why? Well, and then she went on to describe for me uh, the fact that her uncle had abused her in a myriad of ways when she was a little girl. Christian uncle, Christian family. After about 15 minutes of hearing details of the events as they transpired in her early life, she said, my problem is, and the reason I have an awkward relationship with God is that I want to follow him, but underneath all of my actions for him, coming on mission trips and going to church and all the, underneath all of that is this quiet question that plagues my heart, why? Like, what, what, couldn't God have given my uncle a sickness so that he didn't feel like this? Couldn't God have, you know, gotten him in a car accident so he didn't show up and do this to me? I mean, the Lord is sovereign and powerful. He, surely, he can, surely he could do that to protect a little girl like me, right? When you're 19 years old, as I was, and you're trying to answer those questions, you just sit in silence. You just nod and say, I, it's, it's horrible. When she finished talking to me, later on I was having a conversation with the guy who ran the ministry there, uh, who reached out to homeless people by basically dressing like homeless people. He wore sweats and uh, oftentimes would take dirt and rub it on the sweats. And he was a remarkable guy. One of the things you wouldn't know about him, he had a big scraggly beard, looked like a homeless guy, but one of the things you wouldn't know about him is he had a master's degree in psychology. You didn't get that from the first glance. But when I was talking to him about this, he... He asked about our team and some of the things that he might have to deal with. And I said, I said well, you know, there's some, some people who are having these struggles and this particular girl's one of them. He said, oh, would you be willing to come in, have her come in tomorrow morning to my office and we can chat a little bit about it. I have a background in psychology and stuff. But she has to bring a friend. And so I went back to her and said, would you be willing to do this? She said, yes, but you're my friend. <laughs> okay. So we sat, next morning, we sat across from this, this, this gentleman in his sweatpants as, and he, as he started to ask questions of her, she told, her, told him her story that she had told me the night before, eventually got to the point where she was saying, I have all these questions about God and I struggle with him and I don't know what to do about it. And he said, how many people have you told? She said, oh, dozens of people. This is part of who I am. He said, have you ever told God? Well, no. What? 
So you've told everybody else, but you've never actually spoken these words to God. Well, well, no. My dear, he said, you need to develop the discipline of complaining. So I don't like the language. I did, at the time, I didn't like it. Is it a discipline to complain? But I get what he's after there, right? He's basically trying to say, listen, if you're going to go and talk to everybody else about this, why would you not talk to God? What, are you afraid he either doesn't know or something? Sometimes I think that we Christians think that. You know, God comes to our party and he stands in the other room and we say, oh, it's good to have you here. God owes us enjoy the buffet. He's a real bother, that one, right? I don't understand why he did this. No, 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 we're not talking about you, God. How stupid is that? I mean, are you serious? You don't think that the Lord Almighty doesn't know what you're talking about? He knows There's nothing wrong with asking the questions. In fact, there's a faithfulness in asking the questions because you're asking them to the one who knows the answers. So ask him already. He knows already. So yes, it's okay to ask the questions. Second, what causes the questions though? Why do we have so many I'm going to go through those verses again, just point something different out, okay? Verse 12 again, and then we're going to actually work all the way through verse 17 here. Lord, are you not from everlasting? Just notice how many of the character traits of God that are mentioned here. Like he goes on a little mini theology course at the beginning of verse 12. Uh, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. Yes, Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? So he, like, he identifies four aspects that I can count of God's character. Like this is, God, I want to recount to you what I know to be true about you. So what do I know to be true about you? Well, one, I know that you are a covenant-keeping God. You, you have a deal with us. Now, I get that from the fact that the first word that he uses is Lord, but you notice in your Bibles, it has those little capitals, Lord, there. That's the translators, originally in Hebrew, the translator's way of signaling to you that this is God's covenant name. The word that shows up in Hebrew there is Yahweh. This is the name that God gave to the people of Israel when he freed them from the Egyptian prison through Moses. Moses comes and says, God, if you want to send, go and go and free them from the hand of Pharaoh, he's going to ask me who sent me, which God do I say sent me? And God says, you tell me Yahweh sent you. That's my name. It's, our, it's, it's a personal name. It's like you have, you have personal little special names for your kids, right? Shmoopy or Lovey or whatever it is that you call your children. This is God's special name that only the people of Israel know. And it's the name that signifies I am you are mine, and I am yours, and we have a deal together. And so by pointing this out, Habakkuk is saying, yeah, this is, you're that God. You're not just any God, you're our God who made promises to us. So you're a covenant-keeping God who loves us specially. You're also eternal, second. He says, are you not from everlasting? You're not going to die you're eternally existing. You have no beginning. You, you have no end. You are also sovereign. Listen to the language. You have appointed them to execute judgment. You've ordained them. You control 
all things, Lord, even the Babylonians who like to burn people alive. You control them and you're holy. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You're set apart in your perfection. You don't mingle with the filthiness of human beings who like to impale others. So Lord, listen, you're sovereign and you're eternal and you're holy and you're our God. Those are all true about you. And if all of those are true about you, why are you working with the Babylonians? You can understand the question, why do you then tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? I've shared before uh, the experience that I had years ago when I first took my oldest son to get, go to the doctor to get his shots. But if, you've, if you're a parent here, you've done this perhaps. You've taken your, your son or daughter to go get their, their injections so that they can be free from whooping cough in the years to come or whatever it is. This is an interesting experience. I want you to just think about it for a minute. Um, your child, all of your children, believe very many positive things about you when they're young. That might change in time, but like it, when they're little, they think you're amazing. And the reason they think you're amazing is because whenever they cry, you come to their aid, right? Uh, you come with food. You come clean up their pants. You, you come and take care of their needs by giving them hugs and snuggles and you call them schmoopy or whatever. You, like you have this, you've developed a relationship with them where they could, if they, if they had the words, they could enunciate things about your character. My mommy is long-suffering. My, my mommy is caring and sweet. My daddy gives good cuts. Like they would have a good list of those things. And then you take them one day to the man in the white coat and you walk into the white coat room and you sit down and they're happy and the white coat man gives them a sucker because he's just trying to butter them. Anyway, there he puts the sucker in their mouth. They're like, oh, this is so in line with you, mommy, daddy. You care about me like this. You're a good mommy and daddy. And here's the sucker and he's happy and then the man stabs them. While you're holding the child and the, you, the children, they look at the man and they're like, who are you, you wicked? And then they look at you and they're like, what am I to do with this moment? Because I have all of this experience with you. I know of your character and your care for me. And yet this moment, you seem like you're betraying all of it. This is Habakkuk. This is, he's that child in that moment. He's basically saying, God, I know who you are and what you're true about you, but in this moment, you seem wicked. Now, you might not like my illustration. Habakkuk has his own. It's about fishing. Look at verse 14. He says, you have made people like the fish of the sea. And by people, he means we, Israel and Judah. You have made people like the fish of the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler, right? I've asked you for a king over and over again. You haven't given us a good one. So we're, we're like just swimming around underneath the water there, not knowing which way to go, no one to guide us. And the wicked foe, from the point of view of the fish, yes, the fisherman is the wicked foe. The wicked foe, the fisherman, or in this case, Babylon, pulls them all up with hooks. He catches them in his net and he gathers them up in his dragnet and so he rejoices and is glad. And therefore, because he's glad, he sacrifices to his net and burns incest to his dragnet. These people, God, are not worshiping you for what you're giving them. They're worshiping the stupid net. And yet you're giving them victory. 
these idolaters. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he, the wicked idolater, to keep on emptying his neck, destroying nations without mercy? I don't get it, God. The point here is that Habakkuk is deeply troubled by the gaps that exist between his expectation of God and his experience with God. And that's where our questions come from. You and I struggle by our expectations of God when they're not matched by our experiences with God. We know things to be true about him, but then in the moment, it seems like he's betraying all of them. But can I push back just for a second? It is possible, in fact, quite likely, that many of our expectations of God are misguided, and many of our experiences with God are misinterpreted. Here's what I mean by those two phrases. I think we often have misguided expectations of God. So I was reading an article recently, and the article was talking about a family who had two, uh, one kid, two parents, very blue-collar, almost poverty-line family, and uh, they started to watch a lot of Christian television. And one of the preachers on Christian television kept repeating to them that if they give a particular amount of money to this, this guy's ministry, that, this, that the God would then bless them in response. He would say things like, you need, to, you, need to give, you need to sow a seed into my ministry. You need to give this particular amount. It's always the number, 267 or 460. God told me it's 4,624. That's the number that came up to mind. So God is going to bless. You give that amount of money, God is going to bless you in, in response. People kept hearing this over and over again. He's going to give you prosperity in your health. He's going to give you prosperity in your finances in response to the seed sown in faith. To my ministry, this man, of course, owns several airplanes and many houses all around the world. Well, this family started to give because they were in great need. Over a period of two years, they gave $50,000 to him. Now, the article was being written because the interviewer had met this family somewhere and they were deeply troubled with God. Very angry with him, in fact, because in their point, from their point of view, God had not met up to the, his end of the bargain. Now, I got to tell you, if I, if I stepped into that room and I had a chance to counsel them, I would say, listen, I don't think the problem here is with God. I think it's with your preacher. I think your preacher's telling you to believe certain things about God that just flat are not true. That's not the way it works. God doesn't owe you that. But you're being told that, so you have misguided expectations of God. And it's ruining your belief in God. You want to get rid of that God. I want to get rid of that God, too, because he's not real. Do you know that most people in North America, according to studies, actually believe that God is like a divine butler? Like, if you ask them to describe God, they will say, well, what God wants for me is to be a really moral person, so they call it moralistic. He, he, he's there to, to care for me and my need, therapeutic. 
and he's off there in the distance not really getting involved until I ring my bell. Deism, moralistic, therapeutic deism. He's a, he's a butler, and he acts like a butler, supposedly, right? When you get in deep trouble, you ring your bell, and he shows up. He's there to help. If you feel bad, you need a little pat on the head, he's there to help. He doesn't really want to tell you what to do very much because he's off doing more important things than that. He just wants you to be largely a good person. That's the way people view it. And of course, people who believe that start ringing their bell one day, and the God that they expect to show up doesn't show up, and they say, mm, I hate him, that God. Because what do you do when the butler doesn't show up? You get a new butler. So I'm done with you, God. Of course you're done with that God because he's not real. That's not the God of the Bible. And many of our problems in the Christian church stem from misguided expectations of a fake God we've created there down at the bottom of the mountain, molding him together with our gold. Hail God who brought us out of the land of Egypt not real. And he won't answer your prayer. But that's not Habakkuk's problem. Habakkuk doesn't have misguided notions of who God is. He has misinterpreted experience with God. God, you're like this. And all the things that he says about God are true, but his experience with God in this one moment is horrible. What, what am I to make of this moment? And as I always say, look to the karate kid. You guys remember The Karate Kid? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, some of you do. There's a newer movie about The Karate Kid with Will Smith's kid in it. It's not as good. But the 1980s version with Daniel Sot. Yes? Okay. So the story is pretty simple. Kid moves from New Jersey to California, as you do. He needs new friends. He walks into a dojo, wants to be buddies with all the karate guys, because apparently there's a big karate group down there in Southern California, and doesn't work out. They hate him. He hates them. But he still wants to be trained in karate. So he goes and finds this man named Mr. Miyagi. And Mr. Miyagi trains Daniel-san. And when he comes and trains Daniel-san, the first thing that happens when Daniel-san shows up at the, at the training ground, it's not a training ground, it's just Mr. Miyagi's house. And he's got a whole bunch of cars there. And he hands him some stuff that he can wax the cars with. And he says, I want you to take the wax and I want you to wax on. And I want you to wax off. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. No, but I wax this. No, no. Danielson, wax on, wax off. He finishes like the 15 cars there. He's exhausted. He doesn't know why he's doing this. Next thing he says, I see this fence over here. I want you to paint the fence. Paint on and down. Up, down. Up, down. Up, down. No, I want to paint the... No, up, down. Wax on. Daniel is so angry after a while because he's been painting the stupid fence and waxing the stupid cars and he finally has this moment where he yells, why are you making me do this? I came to you to be helped, to learn karate. Drop your tools, Daniel's son. Throws his tools down and Mr. Miyagi starts throwing punches and he says, wax on, and then wax off, and then wax off. And Daniel's son, right in the middle of this, says, oh, I've been learning karate all along. <laughs> Great movie, okay? Great movie. But this is, this is, this is where, where we are, is it not? We are in the midst of learning the karate by waxing cars, and we don't know what's going on from our father who's telling us to do this particular thing. We don't quite understand what the meaning is of it. We have this experience with him, and we're getting stuck in it because we don't see the wider purpose. But if we saw the wider purpose, 
Like, we're the child who's getting the shots, aren't we? We're the one who's sitting there. What are you doing, mother? But if we knew that by getting this shot, it's going to keep you from whooping cough, or there's a larger framework. If you knew that, you would be able to interpret your experience more appropriately. You know, this subject has come up over and over again in the last number of weeks that I've been preaching here at this church, this last year, and I keep wondering, I've asked the Lord, why in the world do you keep bringing this up through all of these passages of Scripture? It might very well be that you need to hear it over and over again, because many of us like to get stuck in moments. And we start making judgments about God that aren't true. We misinterpret those experiences. All right, last one. What should we do after we ask our questions? Verse one of chapter two, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. You know, if you talk to people who don't follow Christ anymore, they used to, they walked away, One of the most consistent things you will hear from them, you can read books about this as well. One of the most consistent things you hear from them is that they've left because they've been disappointed in God on some level. Maybe their expectations of God were misguided. Maybe their experience in the moment was misinterpreted, but they've decided, I'm done. I expected you'd come when I called, Lord. You didn't come. You've not done things the way I expect. You've proven in this moment to be different than the God I thought you were. So I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. And they do. They leave, they go home, they're, 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 they're done with him. What's remarkable here is that I, I kind of expect that from Habakkuk. I mean, he's got legitimate questions that aren't being answered. But he doesn't. You notice what he does there? I, I'm going to stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I mean, the, the cities in those days were walled, and on the corners of the walls, you would have these these turrets or watchtowers, and the job of the military personnel in the watchtower was to look across the horizon and to see, actively looking for the enemy to come. But he picks up this picture and he says, I'm going to climb the rampart. I'm going to stand in that watchtower and I'm going to look to the horizon, not for the enemy, but for you, God, to answer. I'm going to wait on you. And folks, that is the posture of faithfulness. I cannot guarantee that you will always get the answers, but the posture of a true believer is one who's willing to climb the ramparts and say, God, I am here to wait on you. You know, I brought up Lamentations before. There's this lovely turn in the book of Lamentations that happens in chapter three. It's been complaining and complaining about what it is that God has done to them. Lamentations 3.16, he says, he has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. Isn't that a great image? God, you have dragged me along the ground for a while now so that my teeth are breaking because of the gravel. You stepped on me so that I'm only eating dust. I've been deprived of peace, forgotten what prosperity is, so I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them. My soul is downcast within me. But, 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 here's the turn. Yet this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. 
You do know that you're not the only person who's ever been in a dark moment asking difficult questions about God. There was one named Jesus who was on a cross one time and said out loud, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the divine silence, he did not climb down from that cross. Instead, he remained faithful. And God did something relatively big there, did he not? Maybe in the midst of your questions and your silence, God's doing something magnificently big. Just wait. We pray for us, Father. I'm so thankful for this book, this word. I'm thankful, Father, that you have a habit of repeating to us things we need to hear. So I pray, Lord, that once again, the spirit of God would take it, press it deep inside of our hearts and help us to know it better than we have before, Father. We surrender all. That's the posture, Father. We surrender all and we wait for you. We're thankful now in Jesus' name, amen.